0: is reset.
1: Over the last four years, the presidency has been plagued by a stream of false information, accusations of racism, documented corruption and incompetence, and even an impeachment for committing high crimes and misdemeanors. And yet President Donald Trump was able to not just hold on to his voter base, but expand it. It's leaving many voters and politicos asking what are his supporters voting for? Joining me now is Northwestern Professor Alvin Tillery. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy. Professor Tillery, welcome to Reset.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Also with us, writer and organizer Charlene Carruthers, author of the book Unapologetic, A Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movement. Charlene, welcome back to Reset.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, Professor, I'm coming to you first. Were you surprised by the race being this close? No, not at
2: all. First of all, I think that uh, when the votes were counted, Mr. Biden will have won by a very good measure. He's already won more votes than any other candidate in presidential election history. Uh, and this uh, margin of victory will be nowhere near as small as Mr. Trump's was in 2016. Mm-hmm.
1: And Charlene, I ask you the same question. Are you, are you surprised? And, and how are you feeling as you see the, the, the vote totals coming in?
3: Well, honestly, I have a set of mixed emotions and reactions on one hand. I'm optimistic with the returns coming in and seeing the the high overall vote counts. And on the other hand, we shouldn't be even in this position right now when we have a candidate who has such a high return rate and we're still waiting for electoral college votes from a number of states. In any other situation where we didn't have an electoral college, which I understand, I think many of us understand as a vestige from the Reconstruction era, as an attempt to hold on to power um, by uh, slaveholders and slaveholding states, we wouldn't be in this place. And so why don't we have a popular vote as a means to determine who the next president of the United States is? And that lies squarely on the ongoing legacy of white supremacy in this country. So in that way, I am... um, just uh, frustrated, frustrated and, and also angry.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Professor Tillery, uh, David Wilhelm was on the program last hour, and he talked about, you know, he he raised his hand to say that I'm not feeling uh, celebratory, that uh, I thought this, you know, that there was going to be more of a repudiation of Trump's policies and Trump himself, and that didn't happen. Many Democrats share that sentiment. What are your reactions to that sentiment?
2: Well, I think that those persons haven't been watching uh, our electoral system uh, divide into Uh, A set of red areas uh, which privilege a cultural politics that is grounded and steeped in white supremacy, uh, and a set of more cosmopolitan urban and suburban areas that basically accept the tenets uh, and appreciate multiracial democracy. Uh, and, And that's what we're seeing. The good news is uh, for Americans that believe that we can hang together as a multiracial democracy is that um, there are more people living in those blue areas. But, you know, the the way that we pick presidents uh, is exactly right. Uh, your other guest was saying we, we, we are we are still using a system that was put in place to advantage white supremacists, slaveholders. And the reality is that that system is now you know, it is amplifying the voices of people who do not like uh, the fact that we are a changing society. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereby whites will no longer be the majority uh, population share in this country. And Mr. Trump has exploited that divide with his politics.
1: Yeah, Charlene, I I wonder about that, too, because uh, you've seen, as uh, Professor Tiller just mentioned, just the idea that he has exploited that. The president has exploited that. He seems to understand that divide that we're just talking about, that uh, it may be less about supporting the president and more about uh, hating the other side.
3: I think there's so much uh, credence to that point, um, Professor Tillery, for, for a couple of reasons. I appreciate you saying exploited because that notes that it's not new and that we're not at a moment in this nation's history where all of a sudden white supremacy is like on the table and on the minds of people when they go into um, the voting booth or when they go to mail in their ballot. This is a long, long history where white people largely and people who are aspiring to be identified and seen as as white will vote in the interest of white supremacy. Now, let's be clear that voting in the interest of white supremacy is not simply about racial identification. It is also about voting in the interest of capitalism, Mm -hmm. voting in the interest of patriarchy and voting in the interest broadly of global militarism and imperialism. So all of these things are connected to one another. Whereas your average voter, at least in my experience as an organizer, actually knocking on doors, I've knocked on doors in rural areas in Tennessee and someone has told me that foreign policy was the most important thing to them. So I think we would make a mistake to believe that people in the U.S., aren't thinking, particularly white people, aren't thinking about maintaining both local, national and global standing as a powerful entity, period. It is something that is on folks' minds. And so when people vote for Donald Trump, it is to maintain and to and what he's doing to is exploit both fears, anxieties and desires to maintain white supremacist mm-hmm. power.
1: Let's go to the phones. Uh, let's start with Mike, who's standing by in Hyde Park. Mike, welcome to the program.
4: Well, you know, I like Charlene. Again, I'm I, I, I am a bit more troubled. You know, I have been sort of obsessed with this whole politics over the last four years because it has been sort of mind-blowing to me. Never before have we had a politician like this who who's just so blatantly um, we can tell who he is. And so for me, I guess the trouble, the part of this um, is that we had so many more people vote, not only vote for Donald Trump, but more people vote for Donald Trump. Uh, the conversation I've been having over the last couple of weeks is we can put policy issues aside wherever you follow I- ideological debate. I've just been trying to convince people that Donald Trump is not who you think he is or who you want him to be. Um, there's been so much evidence uh, to support that, and so I think again, to Charlene's point. This is a conversation that we have to have. Like, what is that saying about America? What mm-hmm. are people really voting for? And again, it just brings up again this issue of race. We literally have people who are voting against their own self-interest, whether they be poor, or rural people, and you ask yourself, why? Why are they doing that? So I think again. I think they're very threatened by this idea of changing the demographics of the country, them losing this power hold. Um, and I was just listening yesterday, yeah. MSNBC. one of my favorite people, Eddie Gladstone, said we need to call this by name so that we can yeah. we can really start to sort of tackle this conversation, because at the end of the day, that is reality. There is no reason. This is just a, a matter of competence, incompetence um, that we have here on the table. So really, like I guess it's, it's troubling to me, and I think, regardless of who wins, Uh, I think the conversation that we really need to have with ourselves uh, is this idea of of race uh, here in America.
1: Yeah, Mike, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, Let's go to John, who's standing by on the near west side. John, welcome to Reset. Hi.
5: In congruence with what your guests have stated, I think the Democrats have not realized that this is essentially a class war between the college-educated and non-college-educated white America. And the college-educated white America, in in addition to supporting minorities, have supported a transfer of the business wealth into an international business structure, which has financially threatened the uneducated American whites, and they're reacting. And of course, the Republicans are taking advantage of that and having them blame minorities, but essentially it's this financial insecurity, which is at the core of uh, Trump's triumph, and the bizarre reaction of uneducated whites to blindly support his policy they are economically threatened and they feel that the Democrats have betrayed them.
1: Yeah, John, thanks for the call, yeah, Professor Tillery. It is interesting. Both those calls, kind of talking about uh, the disconnect between uh, the president, and who he is, or what his voters think he represents. That obviously plays a big role in, in in this conversation.
2: We've looked at this economic insecurity argument for you know the Trump administration, and since Democrats began to have trouble winning six out of 10 white voters after bill clinton and it it frankly doesn't hold much water i'm sorry to to tell your listeners that most trump voters are not poor in fact nine out of ten whites live above the poverty line they are certainly better off than the people of color voting for uh, democrats in urban and suburban and rural areas and they tend to be motivated by uh, more emotional and cultural attachments to identity uh, than by mm. economic policies. And so it would be easy to say, oh, you know, let's just dump it all on the uneducated, uh, you know, non-college educated white men. But you know what? Those people are are, are making pretty good incomes <laughs> if we look right. at the economic data. So it's more complex than, than just an economic story.
1: But it does come part. back, it does come back in a way, Charlene, to white supremacy, this idea that uh, you, can, you can try to, to, to separate that President Trump is not who they think he is. But they know who he is and what he stands for and what he's what his agenda is as he's pushing forward, not just here in the country, but the world.
3: Mm -hmm. We do know. And I think it gives it gives us an opportunity to think about what we want to do and how we want to show up in the years to come. Um, As Professor Tillery noted, uh, the white folks voting for Donald Trump. And supporting him, because I think it's, it's the ones who vote for him, the ones who show up to his rallies, the ones who share social media and so-called news, or their news, or what they believe is news. They're pushing an agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this agenda is extended to white women. Uh, the exit polls are looking like uh, higher percentages of white women voters turned out, voted for uh, Donald Trump this year than they did in 2016. And so, again, my point about white supremacy being extended to patriarchy, capitalism, um, and militarism, and overall imperialism is really important in this moment. So people who are activists, organizers, people who volunteered, people who made phone calls and texts this year, we have to ask ourselves questions about how do we build campaigns? How do we win on the issues we want to end on? And ultimately, how do we build the kind of society we want to live in where people are actually able to live within their full dignity and not be afraid of violence from the state, be it police or so-called everyday people. All of these things are important right now.
1: Let's go to Jeanette who's in Chatham. Jeanette, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. I am. I'm very delighted with this conversation. And I agree that it is a very complex time that we're in, in terms of understanding the tactics and the tools that have been used against uh, not only black folk but uh, but against Americans. The tactics that, that we must reexamine have to do with the tactics of propaganda that have been used classically by various regimes and all the way back to Hitler. Think about the fact that we have been deluged with media that has miseducated uh, the public, that has mm-hmm. misled them. Think about the fact that the people uh, that understand how an idea gets planted in a a person to the point where you can't unplant it Mm -hmm. uses tactics like repetition, uses tactics like emotional words, labels that you can't get away from.
1: Well, there's obviously that. And Jeanette, thank you so much for the call. That's that's obviously uh, in the play. Let's let's keep going. I got a ton of calls here. Let's go to Nathan, who's standing by in Naperville. Nathan, welcome to the program.
6: In a country that's 70 percent white, I want to be clear that the, the narrative and the push to discuss racism is going to fall on deaf ears a lot. But I think I have an idea that we can discuss openly that you can really get people to think about. On election night, we had the president of the United States, who has 88 million followers, retweet a piece of information that initially bubbled up from a GOP strategist out of Texas, who only has 30,000 followers. That person was retweeted by someone with 500,000 followers and then exponentially retweeted by someone who has 88 million followers in the course of just a few hours. Mm -hmm. The original posting was eventually taken down by the original author, and he admitted, yikes, this was a typo. I should not have done this. He took it down, but it was too late. That information was disseminated at such a speed and put in front of the eyes of the electorate way before it was able to be vetted. So we have to discuss the fact that we are in the middle of an information technology revolution that puts information in front of the electorate so quickly without being vetted. And we can't underestimate the power of that. And we have to have a real discussion about how these things function and how they influence the electorate, because media illiteracy is the most understated threat. Of our yep. future. And I think that's something I'll take the response. Nathan,
1: I appreciate it. Thanks for the call. We talked about that yesterday with Shira Frankel, just the idea of misinformation, and how it plays in this election. Uh, Professor Tillery, as, as you hear from people calling in, whether uh, Jeanette and Chatham making great points about misinformation, but also even Nathan talking about just a great example of how that plays out. It does reinforce some of the things that we're talking about in this conversation.
2: It absolutely does. The first point of information I'd like to to give to Nathan, though, is that by 2030 or 2040, we will be a majority minority nation. And so the race conversation Mm -hmm. and how we can hang together and live together will be important for everyone. It already is important for everyone. Um, And so what I'll say is that social media is the easiest way to exploit racial divisions uh, in our country. And it's going to take a lot of ownership and uh, responsibility on the part of the social media platforms to improve. So far, I think Twitter has done a good job of moving in that direction. The other ones have more to be desired. Yeah.
1: So. And Charlene, I'll, I'll end with you just as, as you listen to conversation, the people calling in and, and even Nathan's point about, you know, there needs to be a change. And and whether that has to do with uh, media literacy or that has to do with the way that uh, that we're approaching talking about these elections or just the way that uh, people are voting for these candidates, your parting thoughts in this conversation.
3: My parting thoughts are that I am deeply optimistic and excited, particularly by the everyday people who are organizing and fighting in states like Florida, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, and of course my hometown and my home of Chicago, in the face of being told that the change that we want is not possible, in the face of being told that white supremacy is here to stay, patriarchy, capitalism are all here to stay, and they're still saying no. And we're seeing a number of wins outside of the top of the ticket. And our wins aren't simply what happens in the legislature. It is also our wins and how we are with each other and then on the land that we live in. Mm -hmm. So I'm optimistic and I'm actually looking forward to where we go next.
1: That is uh, author and activist Charlene Carruthers, also with us, Northwestern political science professor Alvin Tillery. I want to thank you both for making time today. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. For the most accurate and up-to-date information on the election, tune into 91.5 WBEZ or stream us at WBEZ.org. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you right back
4: here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.